We turn to the words of the Holy Spirit as we find them in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Notice the verse that just precedes the chapter. Ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Knoweth, notice, doeth righteousness. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil, and I might add, deliver us from the power of the devil. That's what the apostle has in mind, his work of power over us. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He, in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the Lord of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know 
that he abideth in us by the Spirit who he hath given us. Thus far the reading of the apostolic word, and we're going to focus our attention this evening on verses 9 and 10. Whoso ever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. In the mere reading of it, an interesting passage, but also a controversial text that has been the subject of many interpretations and the occasion for disagreement between theologians and there are those who have approached this passage from its true meaning and have used it to support error and bad theology. In fact, they have used it even to minimize the serious of seriousness of sin, even as sin may be found in believers as we shall see. But a significant text. It is one that needs to be explained carefully. In spite of all the misinterpretations and disagreements, it certainly is a text that underscores the seriousness of sin, but it is also significant, beloved, in that it underscores what it is that defines godliness. It sets before us the mark of true Christianity, of true faith, of one who is a genuine child of God. And you may ask me why you add the word true and genuine. Isn't enough simply to say it sets before us the mark of a Christian and of a believer and of a child of God. I add the word true to that for the same reasons that the Catechism asks what is true faith in Lord's Day 7. Not only does it ask what is true faith in Lord's Day 7, but if you go to Lord's Day 33, it asks what are the marks of true conversion? How many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Why not simply say what is faith and what is conversion? But to add the words true. Why? Because, of course, the apostle and the writer of the catechism knows that there are counterfeit forms 
of Christianity and those who claim to be children of God. And so we turn to the apostle and this epistle with his great purpose to lay before us the marks of a true Christian and of a genuine born-again child of God. And what this apostle does is to, in our text, set before us what it is that demonstrates that one indeed is a born-again child of God. What is it that sets forth that one is indeed a born-again child of God? Well, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Whatever that might mean. And that's the purpose of the sermon to explain what it is that the apostle has in mind. As we have said, it is a text that underscores the seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin even in the life of a child of God when all is said and done. But also, beloved, it sets before us what it is that pleases God and what it is that has his approval. And that's what we are as believers interested in, are we not? Not simply whether or not at the end of our lives we're going to enter into heaven or not. We certainly are interested whether or not we're going to enter into heaven, but that better not be the controlling principle of my life, just as long as I get to heaven in the end. As we live as Christians, this ought better also be at the heart of our lives and interest. Am I walking in such a way as to please God and to hear the words of his approval? Because that's what the apostle has in mind in our passage and what has just preceded it as well. And it's with that in mind that we turn to this passage under the theme, the child of God finding it impossible to sin. The historical occasion for the declaration, what the apostle was not teaching. And then, of course, the next point has to be what is it that he is teaching? And I've described in this way what it is that distinguishes the true child of God from the one who claims to be a believer but really is really born of the devil when all is said and done. And that this obedience to the apostle's declaration here arises out of a distinct motivation. To understand what the apostle is setting forth in our text, it's important to understand two things. First of all, what it is that he is setting forth as the mark of a true Christian, or if you will, what is the great theme of this epistle. That in the first place. And then in the second place, what error is it 
that he is at pains to deal with and refute an error that was invading the Christian church and infecting it with a deadly diabolical error. Those two things, the main theme of the letter and then lending itself to the purpose that he writes the way he does and the great error that he was dealing with at that time and refuting. Let's understand, beloved, that the great theme of this epistle is fellowship with God and that the apostle is then going to deal with what it is that demonstrates that one indeed is walking in fellowship with God. Who is it that has fellowship with God? And who may be assured that he has fellowship with God and may be assured that he is in the way of God's approval and as well, who is it that must be told that if he imagines that he can live as he is living and walk as he is walking and still have fellowship with God and God's approval, he is sadly and grievously mistaken. That must be brought home to a congregation. That the great theme is this matter of fellowship with God, of course, is plain from the opening words of the Apostle in chapter 1, as he states that which was from the beginning, and we have heard and seen with our eyes, and then he states in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then you go down to verse 6, and he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But in 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sins. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. Who is it that has fellowship with God? And the answer is going to be, he who pays heed to the apostolic word and doctrine in theology and in life. That's who. And that brings us to the error with which he was dealing. He was dealing with men who had invaded, infected the church, if you will, and they were claiming that they themselves were now the new replacements of the apostles and that they had new teachings that were to supplant the teachings of the apostles. The apostolic age was passing away just as the age of Moses had passed away and they were in a new age of high spirituality and now they were replacing these apostles who were passing the scene and the apostle John simply one of the very last who was still living. Why the apostle begins as he does, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we 
have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled, talking about Christ Jesus himself, and was manifested to you and unto us. What we have seen and heard declare we unto you. In other words, we as apostles are not to be replaced by these new teachers and their new doctrine, their new instruction. The error with which he was dealing has to do with what we call Gnosticism. It came to be named that in time, the error and the teaching of the Gnostics, and that's a name with a silent G, G-N-O-S-T, Gnostic. And that word is lifted from a Greek word that means to know, which has a silent K. So here's a name with a silent G. And they were, they said, the teachers of a deeper and a fuller knowledge. And it was not simply the knowledge that had to do with doctrinal understanding and so on, but it was a deeper knowledge that had to do with an experience that would have if one gave himself to their teachings and would receive in time the fullness of the Holy Spirit to at last achieve full spiritual maturity, you see. And another age was passing away as they were the ones who were bringing the church of God to a full spiritual maturity. Replacing Moses, first of all, which was the age of childhood. The apostles replaced the age of childhood. And then you have the adolescent age of the apostles with an increase of the spirit. And now there's one more stage and level, and that is the fullness of the apostles. And of course, what the apostles did with Moses is to take certain teachings of Moses and obedience to the laws of Moses and set them aside. They said, no longer do you have to bring sacrifices. Didn't they say that? The age of sacrifice is done. You don't have to obey that law anymore. And circumcision, do away with circumcision. We're done with that law and requirement. And the holy days, the feast days, we're done with the feast days as well. And even laws governing food, what we can eat and not food. So you have the age of childhood with various laws and requirements and restrictions and the apostles set them aside and then replace them with their own requirements, having still to do with what we would say is the Ten Commandments and so on, but that's the age of adolescence. Now finally, you see, we come to the age of full spiritual maturity. And in the age of full spiritual maturity, we can decide what is best for us. We have been set free from even the apostolic restrictions as they perhaps apply to marriage and having just one wife and so on, monogamy. We have the Holy Spirit and now as adults we must make our own decisions what is best for us and our spiritual advancement as they call it, the age of the Gnostics. So 
they were speaking of this growth and this knowledge through experience, and the experience could be so intense and full that one would go into ecstasy, you see, as the sign of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, of full spiritual maturity, and you would know whether you're in the body or you're out of the body, but you know now I have the fullness of the Spirit, and now I am in the level that I must make decisions what's best for me, and have even superseded the authority of the apostles and their teachings and their requirements. And you understand it was diabolical. It was diabolical because, of course, it was also feeding into the church and it was making inroads into the church and you can understand the attraction of the doctrine. I can be one who holds certain doctrines and truths and I can consider myself to be saved from time and eternity and have this everlasting confidence of certainly I'm going to end up in heaven in the end. I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but I can always sat I can also satisfy my carnal appetites while I'm on earth as well. I don't have to deny even myself those things. And there were those, of course, who found that very, very attractive in the name of Christianity. As I said, diabolical. The apostle himself points out that this is diabolical as he, in the passage, speaks of being born of the devil because he is done he is born of the devil. In this, the children of the devil are manifest, and the children of the devil are manifest by not feeling that they are required to do righteousness, and they need not love the brother. That's what characterizes those who were born of the, of the devil. Neither doing righteousness as defined by the apostles, you'll see, and not loving the brother. It's interesting, you know, that that's how they are described. One might think the apostle would say, and he loveth not God. But that's not how the apostle describes those born of the devil, loving not God. And the reason he does, of course, because they all claim to love God. Every heretic claims to love God, problem isn't the love of God, it's the members of the church with whom one has difficulty and their obstinacy to my teaching and taking my teaching to heart and one begins to disparage members of the church and speak evil of them critically and in a littling way. And as we said this morning and reminded ourselves, such a man may claim that he loves God, but as the Apostle John says later, if you don't love the brother whom you can see, don't think that you can claim to love God whom you have not seen. The very way you deal with the members of the church and speak of them and belittle them and disparage them indicates that for all your claim to love God, you really don't love the God who actually love those brothers whom you are disparaging. But notice, he calls the name of the evil one, the devil. His real name, of course, is Satan, but that means the opponent, 
and the one who seeks to destroy the church. The devil means he is a deceiver. And that he is a deceiver, of course, means that he speaks truth, truth, I should say, and then he takes those truths and he, in many ways, undermines those very truths that he speaks by other things that he brings into the picture. But it's the very truth that he speaks that is attractive as he leads others astray with other doctrines. He is a deceiver. And you understand the love that the devil is the one who comes through these Gnostics. And he said, yea, have the apostles said that this is the word that is laid upon you and that God requires this of you if you are to live with his approval and you are to refrain from that if you are to know his approval? Well, don't believe a word of the apostles. You don't have to listen to what they forbid and what they require you follow us and you'll be on a higher spiritual level and you'll be able to decide for yourself what's best for you and your own spiritual advance, advancement. Of course, what they were talking about is you can decide for yourself what carnal appetite you want to satisfy, but you can't use those words. That puts it in the realm of, of sin and deed. So they would use the words spiritual advancement and, and wisdom and growth and so on because appetites are, are good gifts of God, aren't they? Why should you deny yourself satisfying those good appetites, those carnal appetites that you have? Yea, hath the apostles said, it's time to put away the age of the apostles and to know the fullness of the Spirit in your spiritual maturity. They were beloved, those who are known as the deceivers. And what they were doing was foretold by Christ himself, if you recall. As Christ himself prepared the disciples for the time when he would be gone and they would be apostles and be the words of Christ that would come to the New Testament church that they would develop in doctrine and in understanding. If you recall... Christ on earth when he was yet with them, preparing them for their apostleship, declared unto them the coming of wolves. You're going to deal with an era in which wolves will come who will set themselves against your teachings and use themselves to seek to devour and scatter the flock. But there's not only going to be wolves that you recognize right away as wolves, there's also going to be wolves in sheep's clothing who will pawn themselves off as sheep and under shepherds who have good intentions and those are the ones you better beware of and be able to discern. I warn you, they are coming and you're going to have to deal with them as apostles and leaders of the church. Christ made that plain as well in two parables. The first two parables that he taught them as they are lifted from Matthew chapter 13, you recall the first parable, of course, of the nature of the kingdom of heaven that he had come to establish. And the kingdom of heaven, of course, is the New Testament age. It's not a kingdom on earth, but it's a kingdom ruled from heaven as Christ rules his church from heaven. The kingdom of heaven 
as it's manifest on earth. That's the parable. And he speaks, of course, of the sower going forth with the word, and he sows the seed. And you have those different kinds of soil. There is good soil that bears fruit, but there's also these other kinds of soil. One is hard soil. The seed falls on it, and he says the devil just takes away that seed so it accomplishes nothing. But there is another sort of soil that's rather shallow and superficial, and the seed falls on that soil, and it springs up with enthusiasm, he said, and seems for all the world to be that which will bear fruit, except as the requirements come upon that seed, and they have to deal with the harshness of the elements, it withers and bears no fruit in the end. But at first there is the appearance indeed that they are bearing the fruit of the seed of the word indeed. And then he underscores that truth in the second parable, which of course is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in that parable, if you recall, the good man of the house goes into his field and he sows the seed, wheat seed. And that night as he rests from his labor, the evil one comes and he sows the seed of the tares. And then in time, of course, they both begin to spring up and you can't tell the one from the other. Christ warns his disciples, you will find that as apostles in the New Testament church. And it's going to be in the New Testament church until I come again in the final judgment and make the final separation, the wheat into the barns and the tares into the chambers of fire. So it's going to be characteristic of the New Testament church throughout the ages, not only wheat in the church of Christ, claiming confession of faith, we are the Lord, but there's going to be those who are hypocrites and deceivers, if you will, and you're going to have to beware of them. By that parable, Christ does not mean it will never come to light who they are. In the parable, he's saying they're going to be in and bedeviling the church, if you will, till I come again, they're going to have to be dealt with. God knows the heart. He knows which are the tares and which are the wheat. But those who are laboring in that kingdom, on that field, as laborers of, of the Lord, are not able to discern that at first. How will it come to light? And the way it comes to light is that the word has to be preached, the antithetical word of the gospel, and not only what they are to believe and confess, but how they are to live. And as that word is brought to bear upon the hearts of members of the church, in time there are those who are offended and they have no interest in living according to that word with its requirements that are laid upon them. And there are those who under the preaching of the word drift away. They simply leave the church of Christ because they have a different lifestyle that they want to pursue and they're not going to have all these restrictions placed upon them beginning with the Lord's day and all the demands of the life with marriage and all that follows thereafter. But there are others, of course, who remain in the church, though there are aspects of the word they don't agree with and they want to plant their own ideas and live according to their, their own will and whims and in time that may come to light and they have to be dealt with by the office bearers of the church and disciplined out of the church in time. How are they to be known? Well, 
not only simply that they may be teaching error, but they may be found, of course, in the end to be walking in sin. They, in the end, display themselves as those who are not interested really in righteousness, not doing righteousness, living according to the precepts of God, and they are not those either who really love the brother in any self-denying and self-giving way. They have criticisms to bring and disparaging remarks, but they aren't really interested in the well-being of the Church of Christ and its members, and so they come to light, and they must be dealt with accordingly. In contrast to that, beloved, are those who are described as being born of God. Those who are born of God, the apostle says, do not commit sin. And they cannot sin because they are born of God. That in contrast of the those born of the devil who do not do righteousness, do not live in accordance with the apostolic word and then lack the true love for the church and the body of Christ. So the question arises, of course, what does the apostle mean when he describes those who are born of God as not committing sin and as those who cannot sin because they are born of God. Well, as I have pointed out in my theme and divisions, there's two things we must address at this point. What it is that the apostle is not teaching when he uses the phrase cannot commit sin. And then, of course, what is it that he is teaching? That is, what is it that distinguishes those who are born of God from the pretenders and from the hypocrites. So in the first place, what he does not mean and what he is not teaching is some form of perfectionism that one who is a believer at some point in life can attain to such a victory over sin in his own nature that sin has no appeal to him any longer and he walks for all the world in a holiness that is in complete keeping with the law of the, of the Lord and the requirements of the apostles. And that mentality has bedeviled the church throughout its entire history. It, of course, had to do with the Gnostics, as we have already labeled, labeled them, because in their own way they were talking about a perfectionism, because those things that the apostles would have said was sin, they said are not sin anymore. So we can't be charged with sin. We're not guilty of sin because those things are allowable. They're permissible. We are doing what is right and, and true. It's, a, it's in its own way a form of perfectionism. Could be charged with guilt or breaking the laws of, of God and having to seek pardon from sin any longer. They were the spiritually spiritual elite, a form of perfectionism. But it came to light, of course, as the church went apostate over the centuries, and you have the church as it's called the Romish church, and you have those super saints time developed over time. There are saints, and there are super saints, and the super saints live in such a way that there's even an excess of their doing righteousness, and so the other common members of the church may borrow, if you will, upon their righteousness and add it to 
Christ's righteousness for merits, such as the Virgin Mary, who supposedly was sinful according to, to Rome and has an excess of merits that you could draw on if you want to have a standing and hearing with, with God in her name as well as in Christ's name, a form of perfectionism. And then, of course, it happened after the Protestant Reformation as well. It didn't take long. You had a na man named Wesley, John Wesley, an Arminian, and through his Methodism, he's the father of the Methodists, he, he taught that unholiness could be achieved as you, in a methodical way, disciplined your life and followed a very disciplined life so that finally you could have almost a complete victory over your carnal appetites and your desires and live in a holiness. Holiness, beloved, very commendable, but not a holiness if you're going to say, and it's possible to attain in this life, being almost beyond sin and even the appeal of sin to, to one. And then uh, more recently, as many of us, maybe of the older generation, recall there are those who are called the Pentecostals, which was quite a movement a few decades ago, and the Charismatics, and they also spoke of the deeper life and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the second blessing, if you will, and this is the way in which you'll receive the second blessing by your certain kind of faith and going to worship and the music plays, and pretty soon one is caught up in the fullness of the Spirit and one speaks in tongues and one is almost in the body or out of the body and sin and evil has no appeal to one anymore, a form of perfectionism, maybe not for the whole of life, at least for a period of time. More common than you and I, as I said, may think this whole matter of perfectionism as describing some aspect, some period in one's Christian life. And it's not only false, beloved, but it is also dangerous. That it is false should be evident from the apostolic word. Evident from the apostolic word because of what the apostle has already written in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Notice he doesn't say, if we say we had no sin, we deceive ourselves. He's not speaking of the past tense. We had sin one time, but now we have no sin. No, he uses the present tense. Not simply, well, you say, I had sin, but I am not governed by sin anymore. You deceive yourself. The present tense, if we say we have no sin as believers at this present time that we have to deal with on the basis of the blood of Christ and to pray for the Holy Spirit to withstand it, we deceive ourselves. And, beloved, when the apostle speaks here in our passage of those born of God, He's not distinguishing between believer and believer so that there are some who are just common run-of-the-mill believers and then there is another level of believers who are with the spiritually elite. He simply says, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. He's talking about all believers in common as all of us have the Holy Spirit. We are numbered amongst those who cannot commit sin, whatever that might mean as we're going to see in just a moment. He's not distinguishing between believers. He's distinguishing believer from unbelievers. No perfectionism. And it's a dangerous doctrine 
because in the end, of course, one thinks one has outlived one's need for the blood of Christ and praying for forgiveness day by day and living in repentance and praying for grace to live as conversion because I have the fullness of the Spirit. I don't have to pray for the operation of the Spirit. I already have Him in His fullness. And then it's wide open, of course, to every temptation and sin as well as filled with pride. And one begins to think, I and a few of us out there are with the spiritual elite. I hope you all recognize that. And we, of course, then have the most to say in the congregation because we have the fullness of the Spirit, which you yet lack. It breeds pride, beloved, the dangerous doctrine. Now, he's not talking about perfectionism. By the way, just quickly, a couple of other misrepresentations of the, of the text. Neither is the apostle here referring simply to the seed for his seed remaineth in us. And there are those, some good men, who have said, well, does not commit sin. He means that the seed that's in us does not commit sin. It's the holy seed. It's the new man of Christ. That doesn't commit sin. As for our, the rest of our nature, that commits sin. But not this seed. But beloved, that's not the passage. It doesn't say whatsoever is born of God. Referring to the seed, it says whosoever is born of God referring to the believer's person and our lives. And then one more that we must dismiss because it was one that was had the appeal to Martin Luther that perhaps we should differentiate between different kinds of sin. He still had a bit of Romanism left in him as he explained the text. And he wanted to talk about venial sins over against mortal sins. And the venial are the common, common everyday run-of-the-mill sins when we are thoughtless about others and we're not kind as we should be and we lose our patience and so on. Those kinds of sins. They are sins, but they aren't of the mortal kind that, as it were, put one's very salvation at stake, such as murder, rape, abuse of children, or if you, you will, blasphemy, those are gross sins and they are the mortal sins and put one's very salvation at stake, if you will. They, those are the sins that believers do not commit, though we may commit the venial, everyday, common, run-of-the-mill sin. And of course, you recognize immediately that doesn't square with Scripture and Scripture's account. Scripture's description of various saints and believers does it. Because there have been believers who have committed what Luther would call mortal sins. David, a saint no less than David, the man after God's own heart, was a murderer and was, had the blood of Uriah upon his hands. And Simon Peter, that wonderful disciple who became that wonderful apostle, denied his Lord with cursing, blasphemy, and swearing, swearing false oaths. I assure you, I swear I don't know the man. And yet concerning those saints, the apostle says, they are born of God, and as being born of God doth not commit sin, and they cannot sin because they are born of God. If that's not what the apostle is saying, then pray tell, what is he saying? 
What is it that distinguishes one who was born of God from one who was not born of God, but is yet in bondage to the evil one? And this is what distinguishes one who was born of God. One who was born of God doth not continue, beloved, in the way of sin. He does not, if you will, keep on sinning. He hears the word of God and he makes a certain confession of his sin and he acknowledges that he is indeed a great sinner. But having made that confession, he returns to his sin and keeps right on in the way of sin. That is not the love confession of sin. It's the confession that I'm a great sinner, but that's not confession of sin and repentance because what attends true repentance has to do with what the catechism calls the mortification of the old and true conversion, and one makes a break with sin under the exhortations and rebukes and reminders of the apostolic word. And who oh, one distinguishes himself from one who is, as the, as the passage says, does not have the seed of God and is born of the devil. That this is the meaning of the apostle is clear from the passage if you know the Greek. The Greek helps. Notice, beloved, I said helps. Your understanding of this passage, what it means and cannot mean, does not depend upon your knowing the Greek. As if those of us in the congregation who do know the Greek are in a certain higher class than you who don't know the Greek. And because we know the Greek, we can tell you what the scriptures say, and you can't figure it out yourself. You need us, and we become, as it were, the new Gnostics in the congregation. I didn't say you need to know the Greek. I said it helps to know the Greek, and there's a reason why when a young man goes to seminary, he should study the Greek. I'm reminded of what a professor in Kelvin College told me as I was preparing for seminary and had to know the Greek. He told his, those of us who were taking Greek, most of whom were seminary students, remember, gentlemen, the Lord calls mightily through the Greek department. And he was true. If you're going to become a minister of the gospel, you better have the capability of studying and mastering the Greek to some degree because it is helpful. And so the Greek here is helpful. As I said, you don't know, need to know the Greek because you also, as believers, have a certain principle by which you interpret Scripture. Scripture must interpret Scripture, and Scripture does not contradict the Scriptures, and you know that full well as believers. And so you know, if I were up here to tell you that if you're born of God, you don't commit any sin, you would say, well, you may be preaching, Reverend, but you're preaching falsehood, and I know that from what John has just said in his first chapter, as you read it yourself. If, you say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we're liars. And then you can go to Psalm 32 as well, and it speaks of one David who has committed sin, and he speaks, of course, of 
the turmoil in his life. And Romans chapter 7. The good that I would, says the regenerated Apostle Paul. He doesn't say I do no good. The Apostle Paul did good. He preached the gospel. And there's a reason why at the end of his life he said, I have fought the good fight. But he did not do the good. In Romans 7, there's always an article with the word good. I do not do the good, the perfect good. Whenever I, whatever I do for the Lord, I still find sin mixed with what I do. O wretched man that I am, there is still that which must be confessed and forgiven, even as I seek to serve the Lord Christ. As I said, as believers, you know your scriptures, and you know that the apostle here is not saying that a believer cannot do, or a believer can possibly be perfect and not be guilty of sin. But still, the Greek is helpful that he does not continue in the way of sin. It's simply a present with an infinitive. And when you come to the Greek with a present in infinitive, it means ongoing action, continued activity. So the apostle is saying, whoever is born of God will not continue in the way of sin, not as the word comes to him and jars him in his conscience and brings him up short that he is in the way of displeasing God. He has the seed in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. When they fall into sin, even into deep sin as a believer, and as we've already stated, there are examples of that in the Holy Scriptures. But if one is born of God, will not, one will not continue in that sin as one comes under the word of God and the Holy Spirit takes that word and stabs one in one's conscience and says, I am walking in the ways of God's disapproval and in the way that is displeasing to God. And so one turns. And the reason one turns, beloved, is because of that seed that abides in one. Being born of God means that one has this seed that is planted. It's an interesting Greek word too. It's the word sperma. As soon as we hear that word, we may think of something along the lines of something that is sexual, but it's simply the Greek word for the seed that is scattered on the ground. It has a life in it. And God is the one who takes the seed and he not only preaches it in the gospel, but the Holy Spirit takes that seed to some, and he plants it in the heart, the good soil of the heart that he himself has cultivated, that it might bring forth fruit. And one is, if you will, by the power of the seed, remade in the image of his son. One has, as it were, been implanted with a spiritual DNA. And there is the likeness even to God's son. And that's the work you understand of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is not great enthusiasm and putting one into some kind of a numbered with some kind of spiritual elite, but it's the giving of the newness of this life. And the newness of the life is at the same time the destruction of the works of the devil. That's what was stated just 
previous to our passage, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why the Son of God was manifested, came into the world, not only to pay for our sins, but have the right to deliver us from the power of the devil and destroy his work within us, his rule, and set us free. And then, you see, being set free, we learn the way of heartfelt sorrow, repentance, and the way of conversion. And the question, of course, is, what is it that motivates us to do that? I should say, what is it that plays upon our conscience so that we desire to do that? What plays upon our conscience when that word comes so that we desire to leave the way of sin and disobedience and to walk in the ways of uprightness and to love the brother? It has to do, beloved, with the knowledge of what sin does, that it affects our relationship to God. And that comes to knowledge. That was something, you know, that really the Gnostics were denying. You had the deeper knowledge and you had the Holy Spirit and because you had this deeper knowledge and this Holy Spirit, then living contrary to what the apostles taught could not harm those who, were, who had been so enlightened. It couldn't affect one's relationship to God. You could go on living as you decided. You had the Holy Spirit, and so you still had the friendship of God, the fellowship of God, no matter what lifestyle you chose for yourself in your own best interest. You must understand, beloved, that even for a child of God, if he determines through the hardness of heart how we began the service, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, and not to harden one's heart. We can harden our hearts, you know, concerning certain words. We don't want to leave certain sins. And one lives in sins for a time. David lived in a sin for a time unconfessed. Samson returned to the harlot how many times to Delilah? Again and again and again. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom and did not leave Sodom for years and years and years. And there were consequences, weren't there? Moses, you know himself, that great saint, spoke of the consequences of his own foolishness when he smote the rock. He had to tell the people of Israel, I can't lead you into the promised land the Lord was angry with me for your sake. Angry with me, though I am a child of God. He was displeased with me, and he let me know that. I will enter heaven, but I may not leave you into the promised land. Samson, beloved, suffered the loss of his eyes. He wasn't seen very well to begin with in his spiritual way, was he? And he lost his eyes and was treated as a beast. Saved in the end think of the consequences under the disapproval of God and Lot did the brand out of the burning and the list beloved can go on walking in the ways of sin even for the believer has consequences it affects our relationship to God and he will speak of his disapproval and that beloved 
must be enough to shake us from our foolishness and turn us to the ways of God. And when one is born of God, that word is enough in the end to shake one from one's own foolishness and to turn oneself from immorality and sins contrary to the words of the apostles, ways contrary to the words of the apostles to the ways of godliness. We are distinguishing all oh, from people of the world. There are people of the world who may leave their immoralities. They were alcoholics and they joined Alcoholics Anonymous and they're done with drink. They joined Gamblers Anonymous because I'm ruining myself financially. When they leave sexual promiscuity because I brought diseases upon myself and there are consequences to one's foolishness that affect one's health and finances and relationships. Those are true. And if one is living that way, one may even be reminded of that. You understand there are consequences even in the earthly realm and you're destroying relationships. Consider that. But that's not the fundamental reason why one who is born of God stops, hears, turns, and seeks the ways of God again. The fundamental reason is the way I have been living displeases this Jehovah God who hath done so much for me, who sent his own son to die in my stead. And I should repay his love and the sacrifice of his son to set me free to live in this foolishness and sin. God be merciful to me, the sinner. And one prays not only for the forgiveness of sins. If one is really sorry, one also prays for the operations of the spirit. That I know, Father, I need day by day, morning by morning that I may be numbered with those who do not commit sin, who do not continue in the way of sin, but who, in desiring thy fellowship, walk in the ways of thy approval. Teach me, Lord, by thy word. The great motivation, having to do, of course, with the death of Christ himself is the revelation of God's love, but the interest of fellowship with God and knowing his approval, which is found, beloved, only as one walks according to the doctrine of the apostles in doctrine and in practice. You have ears to hear, do you not? Now let us live that way in gratitude for God's sake. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the work of salvation that sets men free. We thank thee for thy patience with us and thy love and thy gospel. We thank thee for the operations of the Holy Spirit who enables us to have ears to hear and that hearts then that learn thy ways governed by the apostolic word laid upon our hearts and may we seek the ways of thy approval. In Jesus' name, amen.